I'm Tom Barbelay, and this is a continuation of the Biota Podcast. For more information on the Biota Podcast, check out biota.org slash podcast. This is a special Biota Live being recorded on Saturday morning, November 7th, 2009, currently at 10 uh, 10 a.m. Pacific. And we're calling this uh, call specifically because of the success of the Artificial Life Workgroup. Now, for folks who tuned into the last live Biota Live with Mark Badeau, you'll be familiar with the stuff that Mark and I talked about, about setting up a, a workgroup to tackle some of the important issues in artificial life, what we're calling the value problem, i.e. explaining the value of artificial life to an external observer, uh, but also issues that have arisen with regards to the industrial and academic use of artificial life, how we can kind of grow the community, get a better sense of the community, and also outreach to the media, which is something that we discussed in the uh, in the last Biota Live that has really built uh, up uh, a following and some discussion through the work group that was created soon after uh, the, the call with Mark last time. So we have uh, a number of people on the call. I want to just introduce the first from uh, identified only as Southern Indiana. Hello, caller. Oh, hi, Tom. It's Larry Yeager. Oh, Larry, wonderful to have you on. Wonderful to have you on. We also have on Bruce Damer. Hi, Bruce. Hi, Larry. Hi, Tom. Hi, hello, everyone. So, Larry, I'm, I'm assuming you heard the last uh, Biota Live with Mark Badeau, and it's certainly a topic that we had discussed previously. What are your, what are your current thoughts with regards to uh, the formation of the Artificial Life Work Group, and what would you like to see come from the work group? Uh, well, um, I just basically like the ideas that were put forward for the work group, the idea that this is uh, um, allowing uh, sort of a, a, a common resource available to the community, available to people interested in the community. It's nice to be able to point to a place and say, um, um, here's what we do, and here's what uh, what we contribute to science in general, and uh, and even just the listing of all the uh, academic units that have uh, good research programs in these things, I think is of value. There's a lot of interest in this area from students coming up, but what they sometimes have trouble finding is a, is, is a good place to pursue those interests. And so uh, this common resource uh, for the community, I think, is a really good idea. Certainly. Well, we have Oliver in the chat room who joined the uh, Artificial Life Work Group but I believe Oliver's 17 and looking for artificial life-related study paths in university in Canada. And I said that uh, certainly there are, there are a couple of universities in Canada that already had artificial life courses. But this, as you say, is just based on my own knowledge. And it would be wonderful to have a resource for people like Oliver in particular who were getting to that university age um, to, to, you know, that they could see, well, I can take some courses here or here's how I structure an artificial life um, focused degree. I mean, you must get this kind of correspondence all the time, Larry. 
I do get uh, students from all over the world interested in in these topics, and um, it's it's because they've happened to have stumbled across uh, across a web page somewhere. I mean, and I do you know maintain my own web page, and uh, I have uh, web pages through the university, uh, Indiana University. And uh, so, you know, it, it can be found, uh, you know, we've got good, powerful search engines these days, but it's still nice to have a, a, a more uniform resource uh, where you can look over the different opportunities uh, and, a, a, you know, a focused thematic resource as opposed to just a, a random web search. Certainly. I, as I, I noted with the Chapman Park Badeau, I found a university in Arizona that had just opened an artificial life course, which looked more like a game development course, but was being called an artificial life course. And I think the ability of the community to um, unify basically a definition, because a large portion of the the initial problem is people may find the site associated with artificial life, but fitting it into a broader context about what artificial life is, and also with courses being taught that are kind of giving a diverging set of definitions associated with that. You teach artificial life courses, Larry. How do you how do you start unifying a group of students come together with regards to what artificial life is? Well, you know, um, for, I suppose the first thing I should say in response to that is that one of the only tenets of the, the current work group proposal is a standardization of, of such things, a standardization of the approach to education and what the field means. I mean, I, I value a broader, a broad picture of what the field means and a broad picture of what is available and then details of these different programs because I don't think we, it's, it needs to be converged. I don't, in fact, I think there's a risk in trying to converge to one thing that we miss out on a lot of opportunities. I think we have researchers doing really interesting work in robotics. Um, we have uh, a person who's been working with me and contributing to the Polyworld uh, software is actually doing some minor tweaking of the Polyworld source code to try to look at evolving uh, natural language processing systems. Um, I'm trying to turn around and use the data that I've generated on evolving neural network architectures to study this relationship between structure and function of networks. There are a huge, wide range of opportunities for this kind of evolutionary thinking applied to science that um, I don't necessarily want to turn into a single vision. No, I, I have to agree with you, and certainly, I mean, this is the... the, the statement you made when you were last on BioToLive, and I certainly agree with that. I don't think the purpose of the work group is necessarily to create a, uh, a focused definition of what artificial life is. I think initially the issue with regards to surveying is actually just taking in the, the breadth of possibilities, and if every, right, new artificial life, if new, every new artificial life course can give us new possibilities, then that needs to filter into every other course in some regard. I don't think this is going to be a narrow definitional thing at all. I, I don't think, personally, and I'm sure you're in agreement with this, artificial life can survive with a narrow definition. It needs to be inclusive, continually inclusive, as new things come along. Otherwise, the, the whole momentum associated with artificial life so far will be lost. So I have to agree with you that I don't want to say, you know, this is artificial life, this is not through the, the aims of the work group. 
down to the work group are saying, this is artificial life being taught, this is wonderful. Have you considered also these things as well? Look yeah, at this person over it. there that is doing this kind of stuff. The history of artificial life, I found this with Noble Ape, I'm not sure you have with Polyworld, but there was a time when Noble Ape wasn't considered an artificial life simulation through these very strict definitions of what artificial life was. And I've been welcomed in and included in the artificial life community, having started developing Noble Ape probably three or four years in. I think it was when I was invited to speak at Biota 3 was when I first felt really welcomed into the artificial life community. I've been developing Noble Ape for about four years by that time. So I'd hate to think people listening in were thinking this is a, a closing down of the term where, you know, knuckling down to try and get funding in for this very tight definition or, you know, start teaching a very tight definition because that hasn't been the history of artificial life and it wouldn't be true to the term to start doing that at this stage. I think, if anything, what we're looking for is seeing the breadth of, of what is being taught currently and giving some assistance with regards to perhaps perhaps we will find artificial life courses which are very tightly taught and we will give assistance to them to, to be able to explore the scope and the breadth of the, of the current field as it continues to develop because I mean, we have Oliver in the chat room. You obviously have students coming through on a regular basis. The, the resources that we're trying to create here are really for the next generation of, of artificial life uh, developers, artificial life academics, to move the field even further. And this is what interests me with regards to the industry component as well, because when I set up the group, I, I imagined that there would probably be about a two-third, one-third ratio of folks in academia versus folks in industry. And the industry group, I've, I've contacted a dozen people this week uh, who I know use artificial life-related stuff, folks at Apple and Intel, folks in, in the pharmaceutical industry who I know use aspects of artificial life and what they do. And the movement of the industry folk in has been a little slower than I'd hoped. We have about 43 members on the work group currently, and it's growing quite well. Um, but with regards to the outreach to industry, this is still something we need to do uh, more heavily. So in terms of the students that you see coming through, you've mentioned this with regards to students that have gone into industry. How do you see the, the balance with regards to teaching artificial life for a, a student that will obviously go on and use it in industry, Larry? Well, um, the way I teach artificial life in particular um, is sort of developing a set of fundamental uh, knowledge areas. Uh, I... I usually I use almost exclusively uh, seminal papers in information theory and uh, neural networks, genetic algorithms, um, and so I, I try to weave that all together into a picture that says, okay, this is an interesting way to study and understand living systems and ultimately even intelligent systems. Um, but I do, in fact, try to sort of... Uh, I, I think it's essential the way I want to approach the, the field to, to, to bring in these important technology areas and areas of knowledge that uh, I've had students uh, go on to um, MIT and tell me that this course was the, the best thing that they had in their undergraduate to prepare them for the, the uh, graduate career they chose. So um, I think we can do really cool, interesting, fun things, and, oh, by the way, learn a lot about really important technology areas. Very true, very true. We have a caller from New Mexico on the line. Hello, caller. Hi, this is uh, Stephen Guerin with uh, Redfish in the Santa Fe Complex. Wonderful, Stephen. As this is your first time on Live, would you like to introduce yourself and your interest in artificial life? 
Uh, yeah, thanks for, uh, yeah, I've been, um, let's see, I attended a Biota 3 in San Jose, maybe in 99, and a few uh, artificial life conferences in Los Angeles and Reed College. Uh, worked with um, Bios Group, which was a commercial spin out of the Santa Fe Institute uh, in the early 2000s, uh, was in Stu Kaufman's uh, research group, uh, looking at, um, I would say, next generation artificial life. At, you know, after evolutionary computation, looking at more what Stu was calling autonomous agents uh, with kind of more metabolic approaches to artificial life, mm-hmm. looking at ideas in work and heat. Um, since that time, we have a we have a nonprofit here in Santa Fe uh, called the Santa Fe Complex that looks at uh, kind of the marriage between art, science, and technology. It's on the old campus of the Swarm, uh, where Chris Langton's uh, offices were. Um, so we have a so we, used to, uh, we used to repair the rail cars here in the turn of the century last year, so it's a it's a cool little uh, swap kind of going here. And I teach agent-based modeling in the uh, complex system summer school up at Santa Fe Institute uh, during the uh, during the summers. And we apply this, so we apply agent modeling and visualization uh, for commercial clients. Uh, uh, and on the research side, we are still kind of pursuing. Uh, kind of new ideas of artificial life, uh, as you know, applications of artificial life. Very cool. So, yeah, yeah, thanks for letting me uh, be here. Cool. Not a problem. So you were really on the, the cusp of this teaching for, for industry. I mean, would you like to, to talk about the kind of folk that you have come through and what they go on to do with their artificial life-related uh, studies? Uh, what was the first part of the question? So, I mean, part of the uh, work group was to create an outreach into industry, and I imagine that right. the people that you have coming through, uh, have many of them have uh, aspirations in industry and go on to pursue it with some artificial life-related knowledge. Could you talk to some examples associated with that? Right. So I think the early days uh, applying artificial life meant more kind of evolutionary computation, uh, doing search and optimization for companies. Uh, and governments um, these days we're looking at kind of how can we um, so I think uh, data visualization uh, is kind of is related uh, not exactly um, a complete sweet spot with artificial life uh, so I would be very interested though in uh, working on the work group of uh, you know, kind of the value proposition to industry and here, here's how artificial life can be applied. You know, currently it's kind of more how can complexity or complex systems thinking be applied, network dynamics, uh, you know, kind of graph theory, uh, agent-based modeling. I think but the longer term, the real potential is kind of bringing in ideas of artificial life. And in terms of the framing of 40 years of Conway's life coming up mm-hmm. next year, I mean, the Swarm Group obviously has some of its legacy to things like Conway's life and obviously earlier cellular automata and the movement into agent-based modeling. Uh, can you talk about the opportunities that 40 years of Conway's life give to the stuff that you've done so far in terms of talking about how artificial life has impacted a wide variety of areas? I think the two big things, uh, so, so the beginning is getting people to get, uh, it's a change in perspective that, you know, very small, simple rules can give rise to emergent patterns, uh, which you know, I think uh, Conway was uh, is one of the best examples that we can show, or a flocking model, uh, and that lets people change their focus when they're running organizations 
to, to focusing on the interaction rules and, and less about uh, optimizing and telling people what to do, move, moving away from a command and control, and more of getting toward what is getting the interaction rules in the organization right um, and, and recognizing uh, emergence uh, when, it, when it appears and, and just getting a vocabulary uh, going within the organization. So I think that, that's one of the bigger uh, one of the bigger contributions from Conway. Certainly, certainly. And I also think, I mean, the length of time, 40 years is, an, a, is a good amount of time to actually show a level of maturity associated with these ideas. And I think in a historical perspective, it gives a great opportunity for people such as yourself, myself, obviously Larry, to talk about this and, and a greater kind of reflective perspective about how these things have impacted our own uh, professional development and where it has taken us. But we do have the, uh, the benefit of Oliver on the line. Hello, Oliver. Uh, hello, can you hear me? We can, we can. So we've been using you as an example in terms of someone who's looking for, for a, a place to study in the very near future. How do you see artificial life and how would you like to, to study artificial life in the future? Well, um, currently uh, I'm, I'm an artist and a developer here in New York City and uh, uh, recently uh, I uh, read uh, Stephen Levy's book, Artificial Life, just on a whim. And it really opened my eyes to uh, this new this new field, and I and I just thought it was uh, an interesting uh, opportunity to sort of explore um, artificial life in an art context. So I started I started reading a lot about uh, artificial life uh, uses in art. Um, Mitchell uh, Whitelaw's book, Metacreation, was uh, a key book in that. And um, Peter Bentley's uh, huge textbooks were also key in that. Um, anything by William, La William, William Latham, uh, his book was also an interesting book on that. So um, for me, artificial life just seems to be uh, another avenue uh, for creative exploration and that's sort of uh, where I'm coming from at this point. I'm not sure in terms of the time frame with regards to your reading and, and where you are currently but do you see in terms of your your prior uh, artistic history there is a long history of the uh, artificial life art community and certainly for the previous two Vita Prizes we had uh, judges on we haven't had for the most recent Vita Prize but do you have you discovered the artificial life art community in a, a similar time frame? Uh, yeah, I, I actually emailed John McCormick uh, because I, I couldn't get a hold of his book. He uh, published a book in Australia about five years ago, um, and uh, I, I couldn't get a hold of it anywhere, so I just emailed him and uh, uh, sort of talked to him about it. Um, but otherwise, yeah, I mean, I, I feel like there is uh, um, definitely a community um, of artists that use uh, artificial life, and they seem—I mean, uh, John McCormack seemed very friendly. You know? Certainly. Well, I mean, growing up in Australia, John McCormack was a real inspiration to me, and he's someone I consider quite a good friend. And his uh, ability to outreach to the Australian community was very great, and obviously he has an impact on artificial life artists the world over. So, I mean, big shout out to John here because I think the work that he has done for at least fifteen years 
has certainly inspired people such as yourself and myself. So it's wonderful to have people like him in the community. In terms of the work group specifically, I have to apologise. I think I, I misintroduced you. Uh, there was a fellow with a similar name who was also on the work group, the nature of 40-plus people on the work group. But in terms of your coming to the work group, what was your broader interest? Um, well, I... I, I uh... I wanted to volunteer in two different work groups. Um, the, the first one was the media outreach work group. Um, I have uh, an MFA in photography, and uh, I do a lot of design work uh, where, where I work at. So I just I felt like um, possibly I could be useful in um, developing a lot of the, uh, the material that could be sent out, um, a lot of the graphic stuff. Um, and also, um, I wanted to volunteer in the teaching work group, uh, mainly so that, um, I would have uh, a good opportunity to, um, talk to a lot of the academics that, uh, uh, I would assume or presume to be in that work group just to learn more from them and to just sort of really soak up, uh, the knowledge that's out there and, well, you have two you have two current academics on the line in terms of Stephen and Larry. What what kind of questions would you have for them? Well, um, uh, I I'm not quite sure which gentleman um, was speaking earlier, but he he had mentioned a class that he was te- he was teaching uh, for undergraduates that um, he was using a lot of seminal papers and information theory and yeah. things like that. I would love to to get a list of that or to get his curriculum or syllabus so that I can. Uh, independently find those papers and uh, read them on, on the subway because that's where I do a lot of my a lot of my uh, reading is on the subway. I understand. If um, let's say perhaps uh, I can use the work group for this. How is that, Tom? If I um, that's the plan uh, put I think I've already put something on there with a link to information about the um, the course, and I can't remember exactly what's there. Let's see. Um, Academic teaching. Well, um, I'll I'll make sure that the work group has a link to um, a web page that has all those references on it. Great. So perhaps actually generating this kind of reading list would be a critical part of the the teaching special interest group anyway. So academics could share uh, resources, and particularly when we talk about the diversity of, of papers, even seminal papers, there you know there are probably three or four decent-sized courses alone that could touch on the seminal papers of artificial life going back in history and philosophy and in mathematics and computation. Oh, undoubtedly. So, <laughs> so I think generating that kind of list on, on the uh, the workgroup's wiki uh, would be of great benefit just to, as you say, tickle the minds of other people that are, that are teaching artificial life-related courses about the potential of uh, seminal papers. That would be a nice resource. And I, I wanted to mention to Oliver... Um, uh, you have you run across Carl Sims's um, not not the blocky creatures work, which is wonderful in its own regard, but his his specifically his evolving art work. Yes. Okay. Yes. Yeah. That's uh, I've I've read as much of his work as I can possibly find <laughs> on the web. Good. <laughs> Good plan. <laughs> you know, I think that um, was it Stephen the, the 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 from Arizona from from um, spinoff of uh, SFI. Is that? Yes. I, I, I missed the very int- beginning of the name, and I okay, good. I picked that up. Um, 
you mentioned that uh, one of your missions there is 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 art related. So I suspect that you have some uh, some things Oliver might be interested in. So if you go to sfcomplex.org, is kind of our um, our nonprofit art, science, and technology uh, kind of group. Uh, I think more on the technology side, uh, some of the tools that we're using, things that might be of interest, uh, processing.org is a free thing to download and mess with. Um, mm-hmm. NetLogo actually has some basic visualization capabilities. It's really easy to get up and running with. Um, you, know, you can get Game of Life for sure running in there, but all, all kinds of different uh, agent-based modeling, uh, toolkits, and it's very good with students. Uh, at the lower middle school level, uh, you know, StarLogo TNG is what we're, we're teaching middle school students. Uh, it's very approachable in a couple hours, and it's a, a drag and composable block language out of MIT. So that's the, um, is, um, is that the uh, the Scratch the Scratch yeah, project that's exactly. doing? Oh, great, cool, cool. And they moved it more into agent-based modeling with a um, with a uh, 3D game characters. So it's a, you know for, targeted at the middle school uh, level. Then I think uh, in general we're just also interested in more. Uh, you know, projectors and cameras and people interacting in spaces uh, now, uh, um, you know, pro- um, now, and then starting to bring in more autonomous agents into that, that space and with people. I worked on a project uh, uh, with a, uh, an artist uh, and musician at Indiana University, um, with Norbert Herber, and we did a, um, a project that was involved projection onto the ceiling of a um, Flocking simulation, uh, nice mm-hmm. simple algorithm we're all familiar with, um, and it was just it basically by dark, completely darkening a little alcove, a little room, um, and black carpeting, black uh, drapes on the walls, and then just having these things swarming on the ceiling. We put some pillows on the floor and made it. Uh, people actually seemed to really enjoy lying in there and uh, watching it. And what I always thought was was intriguing about it was the the agents flying around were not remotely natural looking. They were just little polygonal bodies. Um, mm-hmm. And yet the motion was extremely organic and natural looking. And I think that contrast uh, sort of resonated with people. How could something so artificial be so natural? And um, it, it was a really fun project to work on. I, I did it just because I could and, and had a lot of fun with it. So I, I'm curious to see what you know what more things come out of that uh, projected environments using a life techniques right right yeah and i think people really respond as you say like the carl sims stuff is uh going back to the blocky creatures you know they they're very much blocky but the the motion itself is right right very compelling yeah. i think it's actually hard to find an artificial life simulation uh which isn't in some regard relaxing i mean i've certainly spent a lot of time looking at jeffrey ventrella's work i, I think the blockies are um, people say that they watch the Noblate brain simulation as a means of relaxation. I think there's something fundamentally, I don't know, you know, whether it's too out there with regards to brain, you know, waves or what have you, but I think there's something that's fundamentally relaxing about watching artificial life simulation. Bruce, we have the benefit of you on the line. We'll, we'll get an EvoGrid update at the end of the call, if, if that's possible, to kind of extract you from the EvoGrid for a minute. But you've just come from Flint. Can you describe what what Flint is, how they operate, and do they do any teaching, or are they purely a research organization? Can everybody hear me? Yes. Yes. Wonderful. Yeah, Flint, Flint is a research organization 
dedicated to uh, the, uh, creating chemical protocells. Uh, so they really have a, a tall uh, a tall order in front of them. Uh, there are they they're going out into the world and doing a lot of presentations, and they have a mixture of simulation and laboratory chemistry. Through the work group, I think some of the stuff that was generated, particularly in terms of soft artificial life, wet artificial life, hard artificial life, the teaching of, I mean, what interested me with regards to the Flint audio that you provided was um, the sense that there is a need for soft artificial life to be taught in some areas, a hard artificial life to be taught in some areas, even to these kind of researchers, that we can all learn from the stuff that is coming out of the work group. And I think this seems to be echoed in the in the call today that uh, even folks who are, are teaching artificial life currently can always learn from other areas. In terms of the... Um, so there's no teaching component associated with Flint, but do, does Steen and do other members of the group still teach in the in the university? I don't believe they do. I think they're full-time. They have a... a three or four year remaining on their grant to do this uh, okay. protocell. That's it. Yeah. All the way forward, all the way forward. So in terms of wet artificial life teaching, uh, Larry or, or Stephen, do you, do you have a sense of how wet artificial life is currently being taught? Is it all at graduate level? Is this something that can be integrated to into the work group? Mostly what I, the only areas of this that I'm aware of are either um, – you know, intense research efforts a la a protocell, or um, uh, there's been a lot of work, I think, at the uh, graduate level with uh, and uh, various solutions um, of oils and things that um, um, I, I sort of got in, dragged into a little bit because of a friend, Rachel Armstrong, and her strong interest in it and the... Um, some presentations that went on at um, at Artificial Life uh, 11, and um, it, I'm not deeply aware of this area at all. But uh, uh, there there seem to be a whole lot of um, there seems to be a lot of interest in trying to approach these protocells from a purely uh, chemical basis. Um, as distinct from protocells' approach to sort of uh, a, a real physical space genetic algorithm trying to operate and bring about um, um, a, a protocell. Uh, and they're getting some interesting results. They're getting, you know, chemotaxis and cell, what, what sort of looks from the outside like cell division even occasionally. But uh, there's nothing quite yet that's sort of um, – Propagating from one generation to that, we're not getting um, um, variation and selection going yet. So the, it, it's not something that uh, you know is quite to the level of living organisms yet. But on the other, there's been some such interesting work uh, looking at. Um, ah, sorry, I wish my memory of these things was better. But um, uh, you know, people talked about hydrothermal vents in the ocean for a long time and looked at some of these really hot uh, smokers. But there's a different kind and an alkaline or something that that is not as high a temperature and some really good evidence that uh, uh, it provides nice environment for the collection of uh, essentially protocells because you get all the ingredients that ultimately end up inside a cell but without having to have its own membrane yet and then as the membranes um, form uh, these things get spewed out in the ocean and it's looking like a very good candidate for the origins of natural life and 
some of those things lead to experimental ideas about uh, what the right combination of ingredients and what the right uh, uh, environmental conditions are to, to foster these sorts of protocells. So anyway, sorry, I got off on talking about the, the technology. The, the uh, specific researchers um, uh, all seem to be uh, at the graduate level that I'm aware of. Certainly. But, I mean, I think there's potential in the future, particularly as the media picks up on the wet artificial life phenomena, that you will have students coming through that have at least a passing interest in wet artificial life. And I think it's critical that the work group has a component. I mean, with, with Mark Bordeaux involved, it would be almost impossible for us not, not to. Not to, right. <laughs> that, had some, uh, that had some component uh, with regards to potentially even the undergraduate teaching of the basics of wet artificial life. The thing that always interests me is this idea of a shared API that Mark talks about, that the fact soft artificial life simulators can move into the shared API uh, with regards to wet artificial life too. And I think there's, there's an element of the Evo grid in that too, Bruce. So we, we may let you loose on the Evo grid in about 20 minutes, but we'll, we'll wrap up the call up until that point. So in terms of the, the potential for the, for the work group in the future, we, we have a, a few perspectives uh, on the call. We've talked a little bit about the industry, but we haven't really talked about the value problems specifically. Oliver, as, as you read, as you get a sense of what artificial life is, what would you describe the value of artificial life as being? Oh, that's, that's, that's a toughie. Um, I think uh, for, for me, um, artificial life is, is, how do I say it? It's, it's, it just seems to be uh, one of the big questions. You know, it seems to sort of touch on one of the big questions of what it means to be human but we do it in a way that's that's been it's sort of a proxy for that for me anyway um it kind of defines us as human beings as well just because um we uh have a certain kind of uh cognitive efficacy to to even imagine and um sort of assert a will towards creating something like that um so so for me it, it it's it it just seems uh, to sort of illustrate what it means to be human. Um, I, 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 it's such a tough question. <laughs> no, I, I understand. I mean, I think that's why, it, in even raising it as a as a topic for the work group, it, my view is that it will take, you know, half a dozen philosophers and others probably a, a few years to really grapple the, the full ramifications. I, w I want to give two implicit examples of this because I see Gerald Jung in the chat. And Gerald and I have talked about this in the past in previous recordings for the Biota podcast. And the thing that comes through firstly is that artificial life in terms of when you take all these things together, and the, the good example is wet artificial life with regards to soft artificial life, it's really quite difficult to find a then uh, between the two, if you look at them in a very abstract way, yet yet they're very much part of the same term. And I, the, the thing that I put back to Gerald almost as a quip is artificial life is what what people say is artificial life. It's fundamentally that. But the other thing that I find interesting from what you describe, and certainly I feel this for the artificial life community as well, as an external observer, as someone, as you come close to the artificial life community, you start to see very 
fascinating people. We have we have a few of them on the call today. Um, in my own experience, and in fact, uh, all of you basically. And when you come to this community, uh, as you approach it, you see uh, people uh, like Larry. You see people like Steen. You see people like Bruce. You see uh, people like Stephen. You see all these people that have very divergent areas of interest, but have some shared kind of collective goal. And I think the value can be described in a number of ways. But really, the collective intellectual interests and the fact that there people with quite diverging interests can have the shared element is, is really the thing that is artificial life, and that's the thing uh, that the, the value problem needs to describe. So you don't necessarily need to be so close to the community in order to see the value. That's the critical thing, because everyone within the community has a kind of implicit understanding of what the value is. It's just translating that into something explicit. Larry? You teach people uh, with regards to artificial life. You inspire people with regards to artificial life. How would you begin to start tackling the value problem? Well, there's there's two ways to approach what I, I the value problem. If I'm if I'm using the term correctly, one is the sort of intellectual philosophical value, which is I mean sort of undeniably grand. It's it's the the nature of life itself. That goes back to, I think, the original thinking, uh, Chris Langton, about understanding what it is to be alive at all and um, how to approach that scientifically. Um, then there is the, the, the other value problem. How can the research directions that, that we engage in in order to address this fundamental philosophical issue bring value to industry, bring value to the other sciences. Um, and so I, I'm the, sort of the intellectual philosophical value seems just wonderfully blind, you know, incredibly obvious to me. Um, the, the one I think we actually should spend some time on is making sure that we, uh, I think as Chris Langton again said way back quite early on, we need to give back. We need to give something back to the other sciences and, um, bring the insights that come out of our researches in artificial life back into biochemistry and, um, uh, as my friend's doing, natural language processing, uh, areas that can actually help industry and science in general. Um, in fact, I'd be curious if, if it's not giving away too much, Oliver, uh, I'm sorry, not Oliver, um, Stephen, um, uh, I, who are some of your clients, or maybe what are some of the types of clients that you're dealing with in industry? Um, I, I'd like to, to know specifically what they expect to get out of it, what they intend to apply it to when they, they get back home. Um, yeah, not at all uh, secret. Um, uh, so, so I think uh, agent-based modeling and visualization are kind of where the the, the smaller uh, incremental steps are coming as you apply artificial life. So I think it's kind of more... And those do apply quite broadly. Yeah. So, so I think that's kind of a lot of what we're doing. Um, but, you know, our, our further reaching goal is how do you now start treating organizations as living systems? Um, you know, our definition is kind of starting more from the Stu Kaufman's all living systems do work cycles um, mm -hmm. perspective, kind of a way the evolutionary computations in there, but it's more of a, a, a metabolic uh, approach. Um, and there's some people in the 80s in the uh, ecological psychology uh, is, is a discipline that looked at uh, as a thermodynamic work cycles were 
foundations to cognition, which was a kind of weird thing to unpack. It took a long time. It took, it take, took some time to kind of think about how that applies to software. Um, what we, um, so, you know, what does work and heat mean in software? Uh, right. And, but, but in the applied side, um, you know, some projects we're working with the uh, San Francisco, looking at how kids move through the youth mental health system. Uh, we model the criminal justice system in the UK, the home office there. Uh, one of our favorite projects is uh, we're mo- uh, modeling boat traffic in the city of Venice, Italy. So we get to ride around on boats and model the canals. Um, so, but it's, a lot of times it's agent ba- agents moving on graphs of one type or another and visualizing them, and letting people um, getting a sense of what is, and then you know what, and then running what if scenarios. But, but you know, so it's 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 a it's a small step to what I would think is a the larger. You know, I think the promise is how how can you really start dealing with these systems as adapt you know adapting to their environment and and uh, you know and doing real work. And in terms of what you're doing currently, can you project in ten years' time the kind of things that you'll be doing? And do you get a sense of what the future holds for uh, artificial life outreach into industry? Um, what would you like to be doing in ten years' time with this? Let's put it that way. Um, so yeah, so I, would, I think I would like uh, certainly the tool cha- uh, toolkits to be better, um, uh, both on the visualization and modeling sides. Um, I would like to have a, a stronger theory uh, of, of uh, artificial life uh, in, in this metabolic space, uh, um, ideas of symmetry uh, and symmetry breaking as they relate to constraint construction organizations. Um, I don't know. I, I, I guess I would like uh, a stronger understanding. Yes, we're still we're still uh, we're still grappling. And Bruce, in terms of the in terms of the amazing polymaths in artificial life, I mean, my my um, inspiration in some regard, and I know yours too, comes from Freeman Dyson. When you look at someone like Freeman Dyson, and in terms of his general and broader thinking, in terms of simulation, in terms of ideas in artificial life. What do you think the, the field could learn from Freeman, and how do you think uh, the value problem can be expressed through Freeman's thinking? Well, ironically, when I last time I was uh, sitting down with Freeman on the Evil Grid project in, earlier this year, he turned to me and he said, my one great regret of my career is that I never got into computing, i.e. I never wrote any code, I never built any software systems. I, I, I looked at it all happening here at the Institute with von Neumann's machine, but I never did it. And when I look at his toy universe model in Origin of Life, you know, in the first and second editions, that's kind of a prescription for writing an origin an artificial origin of life system in software. So he was doing it in mathematics, but wanted to do it in software. So in a sense the toy universe's approach of, of completely fundamental emergence is inspired by Freeman uh, and his desire to have uh, tested some of his models that are in mathematics. And in terms of in terms of your broader surveying of, of artificial life, and obviously starting biota and these kind of things, you've obviously considered the value problem at, at various points along the along the journey, so to speak. What's your current thinking in terms of? the value of artificial life and how you express that to uh, an external community? Well, the way I I prefer to explain it is really not watering down the visionary component and trying to come up with 
you know, fairly vertical and, and small applications, but starting with the public, with uh, the, the total vision. Uh, and I would I'll liken it to explaining to why we're going into space. You know, why we're going into space, it did have some commercial spin-offs, but the primary thing that everyone grokks about that is that it's for the human soul and the human spirit, um, that, that it's the vision for our species, some some degree of pride and national chest pounding, but really we're doing it because um, it's a unique thing we can do in the universe. And for my for my nickel, uh, artificial life is about that same kind of exploration. It's, it's, it's probing back into time to ask the question of how could we have emerged from non-living parts? You know, how, how, what does that mean for our our understanding of of creation? and religions and spiritual beliefs and why did the universe uh, cough up living systems? Up in, 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 is there spirit in those systems? I mean, it really, it's, as, as I think was said earlier, it's, it's about being alive as a species and uh, having a sentience, uh, and that's why we need to do it. Um, so that, that's, that's how... I tend to approach, and of course, there are a huge number of spinoffs as there has been from space technology. Understanding who we are um, as a as a, a living race is uh, you could hardly have a more fundamental question. Yeah. Yes. Well, we have we have a lot of people in the chat room that are they're putting in their own particular uh, visions with regards to the future of artificial life, and I'd like to thank the chat room in particular. For folks who are interested in participating in the work group, just go to biota.org slash podcast. There is a mailing list associated with the work group, and you'll be able to see some of the folks who are involved. Larry, you, you're not on the mailing list currently, but you're kind of taking a precursory. You're, you're really surveying the, the work of the work group currently. Actually, I thought I had by registering with the uh, with the wiki. I thought I was officially there, but uh, well, I, consider yourself officially there. Then we have had a number of people that have signed up to the work group mailing list who are interested in surveying it, and I'd also like to say that that's fine as well, Larry. I was going to use you as an example of that, but you you are very much an active participant, and it's it's wonderful to have you uh, as part of the work group. This is going to be an ongoing discussion through uh, the Biota Live format. We're going to have people on on a regular basis to talk about it, and just through the the impact of the chat room. And I think uh, Bruce and I have been on a number of Biota Lives previously, but the the energy that's coming into this work group seems to uh, indicate that this is clearly a, a shared objective for the artificial life community. It's wonderful to have the opportunity to distill that through uh, talking with Mark Badeau initially. So, Bruce, you've been travelling recently. You've done some stuff associated with the EvoGrid. I think folks in the listening audience would, would love to hear a, an EvoGrid update. How are things going currently? Well, some fundamental things have happened uh, in, in, in an unusual way. Dick Gordon, who, as people may know from previous podcasts, is the, the brain, the, the inspirer behind the EvoGrid project, drove 1,500 miles pulling his 26- or 30-foot travel trailer arrived in Santa Cruz on the coast here Wednesday night, and I went and spent most of the day with him and his wife and their two dogs on Thursday. And we sat down at the little, you know, Formica table and worked uh, for hours on the Evo Grid and came up with some real fundamental innovations that I think finally closed the loop on the Evo Grid and allow it to 
become a simulation that doesn't have the holes punched in it of potential accusations of intelligent design, um, i.e., and just, just a real brief explanation, that the observers looking for interesting phenomena, the observer functions are in themselves uh, going to be developed through evolutionary techniques. So the observers are part of the system, and what this is what Dick Gordon calls the evolution or the arising of perception. Uh, that, so like the von Neumann machine at the Institute in the 1950s, we're going to not have any patch cords in here, folks. It's got to be a completely self-referential system. So if stuff happens in there, it's observed by little widgets that are themselves uh, subject to uh, evolutionary development. In terms of the Dick Gordon Roadshow, he's he's making his way down to spend some time with William R. Buckley currently. I, I fielded an email from him yesterday. I don't think I'll be leaving Las Vegas in the near future. But I think that Roadshow will certainly uh, contribute a, a lot back into the EvoGrid project, and I look forward to hearing future updates from you, Bruce, with regards to it, because obviously the, the EvoGrid, do you call it, uh, how, how's the EvoGrid's relationship with Biota, as you say it explicitly? Is it a sub-project, a project of Biota? Is it a, uh, something that runs in parallel to Biota? What's your current thinking? I, th I think of it as a fundamental Biota project. Well, I'd like to thank the, the participants today, Stephen and Oliver in particular, because you're both new participants. It's wonderful to have new folks involved with Biota Live, and also thank you for your uh, participation in the work group as well. I think the issues associated with media uh, and the value problem are going to be ones that are, are periodic and returned to, and certainly uh, Larry and Stephen both have, have talked about their own particular interests with regards to uh, how to propagate the message of artificial life through teaching, and I think that's a fundamental aim of the work group as well. So a short Biota Live today, primarily because it's being recorded on Saturday morning, but due to the immense feedback, I think the Saturday morning time format works very well. We've had a, a number of folk from uh, the East Coast and from Europe in the chat room, including uh, Eric Burton, Gerald de Jong, uh, Ryan Flanagan, who I believe is in Japan, uh, and, of course, Rudolf Benikoff from the Netherlands. So I'd like to thank all the folks in the chat. I'd like to thank uh, the folks who've participated in the call. And thanks in particular to the listeners. Please, please participate in the work group. Go to biota.org slash podcast and get involved. Thank you very much. 